Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Leonora Walters, and joining me today are personal finance writer Kate Bailey and special guests Petronella West, Chartered Wealth Manager and Director of Private Clients at Investment Quorum, and Martin Bamford, Chartered Financial Planner and Managing Director at Informed Choice. Today we are discussing how to achieve growth in your ISA over a relatively short time period, for example in the run-up to retirement. First of all, if you've got 10 years or less, can you realistically expect to boost your savings for retirement or otherwise? Martin, what's, what's your view on this? I, I think 10 years is a you know, pretty decent length of time to invest your money. Um, anything too much shorter than that, I think we'd be recommending people stuck to cash. But you know, seven to 10 years plus, um, at least it gives you time if there is a market crash just to recover from that happening. So um, it's probably too long a time period to leave your money in cash because then inflation would erode its purchasing power, but probably just about long enough to expose at least some of it to investment risk. Petronella, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think I'd, I share that view. I think um, it's it's very much about understanding what your uh, expectations are and what your requirements are for the capital. So if at the end of 10 years you need to have a guaranteed capital sum, um, then of course you need to watch the strategy very carefully. So it's But over a 10-year period, I think it is a realistic time frame with which to invest your capital. Um, turning to the strategy, um, how would you go about getting as much growth as you can? And just thinking in particular about doing it within an ISA wrapper, um, bearing in mind things like the um, annual £15,000 limit or 15240 uh, this year. Um, I think that... Um, you. Everything really hinges on your attitude to investment risk and also it hinges on your capacity for loss because if this is a very significant sum of money to your overall wealth, then you need to consider the level of risk that you're going to take. Whereas if you're prepared um, to take a degree of investment risk, I think you can expect reasonable returns. You know, you, you are specifically what level of growth you might achieve. I think it's realistically with a sensible investment strategy, perhaps to look at a 5% annualised return over that period, provided you're prepared to ride out the more tricky times, um, if we get a stock market volatility. Um, so I think you you know, you know, can expect a realistic level of return, but it needs to be taken in context to your wider uh, strategy. Martin, how would you go about implementing um, a high growth strategy um, over 10 years? Um, I think I'd start be, by being very nervous about um, sort of pitching for high growth over a 10-year period. I think I'd want to um, want to ensure that the investor was very comfortable with that level of risk, but also that they needed to take that much risk with their money. So it all comes back to financial planning. You know, what's the goal in mind? Don't just take investment risk and invest for the sake of it. But I guess a strategy for, for a 10-year investment, trying to get a reasonable level of return each year for 10 years, um, definitely sticking to mainstream investment asset classes. Don't go for anything sort of esoterical or, or very high risk because actually you need much longer than 10 years to uh, to ride out any volatility for those asset classes to so stick to the, the sort of fairly vanilla investment types you know fixed income equities and, and maybe some commercial property and make sure your portfolio is diversified so you know, if one particular investment asset class does have a, a tricky period at least you're not going to um, expose all of your portfolio to that uh, that market at the same time mm, i mean we've touched on it a bit there but petronella what what kind of investments do you think are, are suitable for for implementing this kind of strategy? Well, I think we've when we've come out of the last um, 10 years, which has been a lot about fixed income, and I think currently um, fixed income assets do represent, um, it, it's very tricky to, to select the right investments in the current environment. 
Um, I think we're going to stay in a very um, low interest rate environment. I think um, central bank policies are going to be very accommodative. And I think that, um, so therefore, if you're looking at investment strategy today, you need to take into account quite a lot of economic factors um, in, the, in, the, in the greater scheme of things. So um, we actually favour um, focusing very much for investors on a total return. So looking at capturing income as well as capital um, growth inside the portfolio and predominantly from good quality equities although you know i heed what martin says i think it's very important that it's about understanding the tolerance of risk that, that the investor is looking to take is, is very key to that decision yeah i mean we were you were touching on the issue of risk and um you know it is true that higher risk investments can get higher returns i mean with a 10-year growth strategy if you are really keen for that growth I mean, how risky should you allow your portfolio to get? Um, Martin, I'll start with you. Um, if, if, you, if you absolutely need to have a high level of return over those 10 years and you're prepared to take that much risk and you're able to, so you've got that capacity for risk, I mean, go for it. You know, it can, it can be as risky as you want it to be. But I think it's really important that you need, you want, and you're able to take that risk before you do so. So, you know, go for the, um, the frontier market investments, go for um, you know, certain commodities which represent much higher risk, but understand that with chasing those higher returns, you're going to have a much, much bumpier ride you know it's going to be much more volatility much greater chance of capital loss um and probably a you know more emotional investing experience during those 10 years petronella i mean how, how risky would you advise your clients um, to well, get? i think there are i think there are you know commodities have had have been absolutely smashed out over the last <laughs> few years and i think um there are potentially some interesting opportunities there but i think in conjunction of a sort of steady growth i'd be more inclined to look at sort of um equity income yield Good quality companies, strong balance sheets, um, those kind of those kind of funds focusing in that area. Um, I think direct equities represent a high a high degree of risk, although you know can be much more cost effective to to purchase uh, in an ISA. But I think with with funds, you diversify, as, as Martin said, the risk away. But um, I think equities, it, there's a range of risk within the equity market. So I think it's about selecting carefully. Right, yeah. Just, just thinking about people doing this prior to um, retirement, um, obviously conventional wisdom says you should risk de-risk before you um, actually get to that point. So with this kind of strategy, um, you know, should you start de-risking it perhaps in year 7 to 10? Or is there an argument, let's say, for, you know, maintaining, um, a, you know, say, for example, a good level of equity exposure? I think that the um, traditionally we would we would get to a retirement age and we'd be looking to purchase an annuity and hence the reason of wanting to de-risk so not of capital loss. Whereas with the current um, environment, we're living longer, so retirement is just seems to be now part of a third age. And I think it's important that we're not just perhaps cashing in at one particular point unless there's a capital need because actually we're looking to invest potentially from our 60s into our 80s and actually we need to protect ourselves against long-term inflation so I don't think it's necessarily the right decision just to de-risk just because you're running up to retirement because it may be that you need that portfolio to continue to produce income or capital growth for you well into your retirement to support your longevity. Does that apply just to let's say income drawdown investors or um, if you are going to purchase annuities some people still will should you de-risk as as you as you did traditionally i think if an annuity purchase is right for you then obviously de-risking the assets and it's about 
I think it's important that investors sort of start planning for retirement, perhaps over the five to three to five years before they're actually considering making that decision. You know, we're often talking to customers about what is that date that you are planning for that to happen at some point in the future. And it's planning in the years up to it so that your investment strategy and your uh, pension planning and your retirement planning is all sort of focused towards that. But not just on the day it happens, you know, sort of wake up on your 60th birthday and, <laughs> oh, dear, there's been a stock market crash, I think is uh, could be very unfortunate. So lots of sensible planning. Martin, do you think that people should start de-risking, um, let's say, um, in the run-up to uh, retirement? I think, yeah, what, what Petra and I just said then really resonates with me as well. We're not in traditional times anymore. So much has changed. That used to be conventional wisdom that you'd de-risk as you got closer to your, your sort of target retirement age. I think now with everybody living for longer, just with a different approach to retirement, it's, it's important to take a very individual approach to risk and, and you know, changing levels of risk in the portfolio. And of course, the other big challenge we've got these days is what is de-risking? You know, what is a, a lower risk asset? Um, because we've got artificially low inflation, yeah, artificially low uh, yields on gilts and things. Yeah, QE is, is really reduced bond yields. Um, there's also some signs that sovereign uh, sovereign debt uh, is beginning to burst a little bit in terms of its bond bubble. So I think that traditional approach we followed of moving from equities to gilts as people approach retirement just doesn't really make much sense anymore. So certainly de-risk, but think very carefully about that approach to de-risking if you need to if you need to reduce the level of volatility in your portfolio. I mean, does all that mean that we're looking at quite kind of different kinds of funds and, and asset classes to what we might have been looking at in the past when people were turning to annuities? I mean, the popularity in kind of multi-asset funds, do you think that's where people should be looking now as, as part of that kind of different strategy? Or I think that the... Um that the asset managers are offering a wider range of choice to investors because investors are definitely looking more at where they can find their own research um, through Investors Chronicle as an example about trying to um, you know and I think asset managers are looking for solutions sort of one stop all solutions obviously if you are doing it yourself then you need to tread carefully and look at you know look under the bonnet look what's actually hold, hold in held in these mm. funds because sometimes you just look at the headline figure and actually what's underneath is more risky than you actually were anticipating. So I think it's careful due diligence. Um, there is a cost factor to some of those funds as well that we would we would always warn customers about um, mm. because there can be some, some additional charges in there that you weren't expecting that can hit on performance. Yeah, and I mean, when it comes to costs, obviously fund costs compound over longer periods, don't they? Is, is that such a concern for a portfolio running for 10 years or, or less? Martin, what, what do you think about that? I think it's it's less of a concern. Um, obviously, the longer you hold your investments, uh, the more of a concern that you know, uh, compounding cost is. But yeah, cost is always a consideration for investors. But it's it's only one factor to consider. You know, we we focus, I guess, a lot more on things like consistency of performance and risk-adjusted returns than we do on cost. You know, cost is one thing, but you know, the value you get by investing is, is completely another. In, in a way, I think in recent years, there's been a bit too much of a focus and emphasis on cost when it comes to investing. Um, you know, if an investor is getting a return they're happy with and a risk level they're happy with, cost becomes much less important. Just finally, um, what uh, mistakes or traps should investors try to avoid when um, trying to rack up a lot of growth over a 10-year period? I think one of the mistakes investors make is probably around emotion. So they tend to get emotionally too attached to a particular fund or a stock or they get um, that's doing particularly well and don't sell it at the right time or alternatively they hold on to their losses for too long and emotion the more emotion you bring into investment the more mistakes you tend to make so it's about trying to be quite 
um, ruthless and methodical about your research. You know, when you are taking them, they think actually this isn't going to pan out for me, and I'm going to take a point where I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to accept those losses or. I've I've made enough gain. Um, there are so many stories of investors holding onto shares as they as they you know were rocketing up through two thousand six and two thousand seven, simply to get that extra ten percent. You know, perhaps sometimes leave the top ten percent because that means you know that's that's a bit less to lose when the, when the markets do adjust. So, for me, it's a lot about emotional investing. Martin, of any common mistakes that you'd like to highlight? Um, I think yeah, similar to what Petronella said, then around emotions, but just. I guess try and try not to be too clever with making um, decisions around market timing. So um, you know, investors and investment advisors, we, we really can't second guess the markets. Um, you know, even the most highly paid fund managers, I think, with all their experience and resources, don't know for sure what's going to happen next. So we can all make educated guesses about what's coming next, but you know, it's very different from actually knowing what's going to happen next. Um, so you know, form a strategy and investment strategy up front stick to a process, you know, rebalance each year to take some profits and reinvest in the, the underperforming asset classes. But you know, stick to that process and don't sort of try and let uh, let your belief in your investment capabilities take over. In this week's Investors Chronicle, our main funds article focuses on Asian equity income, um, a relatively new but increasingly popular area. Kate, historically Asia has not been associated with income, so why are investors turning to this area? Um, well, there are a few reasons. So um, a few reasons why Asian equity income is, is becoming popular um, now or over the past kind of couple of years. Um, so firstly, people have been finding it obviously increasingly difficult to get income from, from anywhere, really, with rates being so low and, and, and yields being very low um, kind of across the spectrum. And now we've had some people being a little nervous about UK equity income funds and whether they can kind of maintain their income, particularly last year when we had some very high-profile dividend cuts from, from some of the big corporates in the UK. Um, and also people are slightly concerned about UK equity income as being a very concentrated sector um, in terms of high-yielding companies. So the top 20 companies in the UK account for around 73% of dividends, and that's compared to 49% in the top 20 Asian companies. And then also, according to legal in general, there, there are more stocks uh, yielding over 4% in Asia than Europe and the UK put together. So there's obviously a big pool there in terms of high-yielding companies in Asia. And there has been this ongoing culture shift um, in that region towards paying dividends. So historically, companies in Asia were not good at paying out dividends to, um, to shareholders, but that has been changing. And there is kind of an increased emphasis over there on, on corporate governance and and kind of a realisation of the benefits you get in terms of shareholder loyalty from, from paying out dividends. So kind of increasingly popular from both sides, a bit more kind of urge from investors to, to find high income, which you do get from, from these Asian companies, and um, also a, a bit more of a kind of prevalence of, of good yields and um, good funds over there. What kind of companies uh, pay attractive yields in Asia? Well, it's, it's quite interesting because obviously um, when you think of equity income, you do tend to think of those more defensive companies which can pay consistent dividends um, throughout cycles and they do tend to be a little more defensive. Um, so it's, it's those companies that will kind of protect you slightly in a market downturn um, but, but maybe not give you the same upside. But then people say that in Asia actually some of these companies are also pretty high growth um, because some of them tend to be a bit younger. So it's kind of an interesting mix. Um, and sometimes when you talk to people, it can sound like the best of all worlds, which uh, seems a bit too good to be true. Um, but yeah, you do have those kind of major utilities and things, but also some, some slightly different ones as well to what we would have in the UK, I think. 
Martin, what do you think about Asian equity income and do you use these kind of funds for your clients? Um, I can definitely see the appeal of um, Asian equity income for income investors because it does help with that diversification away from um, the UK equity income, which has traditionally been the sort of the, the main source of it. Um, and also, that I think people are more and more searching for higher yields now, particularly with Western markets with yields being sort of suppressed by QE and low interest rates. Um, to date, we've not included um, Asian, Asian equity income funds in our client portfolios. We've not quite had the need to yet. But it's, um, it is a, you know, becoming a more established market. Um, as Kate just said, the dividend culture out there, I think, is becoming more established. I think in time, we'll certainly be including it as a, a small allocation for income investors. Petronella, do you use Asian equity income funds? We do. We we like Southeast Asia as a region very much. I think it's um, there's a lot there's a lot better democratic processes. I think we've got the ASEAN um, uh, union now together, which is really you know helps represent a better proposition for for longer term investors. And I also think that the Historically, I think, you know, there's an argument for some of the risks, but I think as markets are becoming more developed and looking over the next 10 years, I think there's a lot more opportunity, even though rates of growth are slowing, you know, particularly in places like China. um, They do still have much more significant economic growth than we do. So in Western markets. So I think it does represent a lot of opportunity and we do less in that area. But I think caution, um, currency risks, Mm. um, you know, downgrades uh, all need to be taken into account. So it shouldn't represent a very significant part of the portfolio unless you're prepared to take that risk. Petronella, you highlighted uh, some risks there. Um, so, Kate, is Asian equity income much more risky than UK equity income? Yeah, I think it's a case of just being quite a bit more volatile. So, over the long term, um, you know, your, your returns are probably going to be fairly good or, or you would hope that they could be good over the long term. But during that time period, you might get some quite sharp drops. Um, so, it's a case of kind of just holding on and, and being prepared for that because it is things like currency risk and and downgrades and um, in all of these funds that I've looked at you know year to year they can they can peak to trough quite quite dramatically so yeah volatility um, is the issue more than risk maybe. Martin do you think the uh, risk of Asian equity income funds out uh, you know it outweighs the rewards or do the rewards outweigh the risk? Um, I think I think investors are probably well rewarded for the risks, additional risks they take in those funds. But it's important as an investor to go in with your eyes open. You know, you should be aware that that volatility is a, a likelihood. Um, you should be aware of things like currency risk and sort of ge- geopolitical risks in that region, um, and also the regulation of markets, which isn't the same as uh, the Western markets that investors might be used to. Although it has you know, improved massively over the past decade. But yeah, typically I think if you're if you're taking extra risk with your money, you should be rewarded for it. And um, you know, established equity markets do tend to work like that. Another reason why Asian equity income funds have been in focus uh, recently has been the departure of a high-profile manager in the sector, Jason Pidcock. Kate, what fund did Jason manage and what's going to happen to the fund? Um, yeah, well, obviously, this is, this is big news. Um, it's a very dramatic exit because he's left from managing a very high-profile fund, um, Newton Asian Income, and he's gone to rival Fundhouse Jupiter. Um, I mean, this Asian income fund is, is the one that everybody talks about when you when you talk about Asian income generally. Um, he's managed it for 10 years um, and it's it's enormous. It's 4.4 billion and has done very well. It's returned 183 percent um, since he's been at the helm there. Um, and that's compared to the benchmark 146. So um, on his departure, Newton is combining its emerging and Asian equity teams under um, Rob Marshall Lee, and he's been managing the the Newton Global Emerging Markets Fund 
since 2011. And it's quite a change because it's going to move from being this kind of lead and alternative um, alternate manager model to being a team approach. And it's quite interesting from, from the Jupiter perspective, it's quite a big statement of intent there because they've been building out their emerging markets coverage. Um, they took Ross Teverson from Standard Life to be head of global emerging markets strategy and um, created the new global emerging markets and unconstrained fund in March, which he is now at the head of. So it's it's kind of Jupiter saying they really want to build up this Asian income strategy and, and they're putting Jason at, at the head of it. Um, so we should expect to see a new fund over there next year, probably I'll give him some time to kind of get his feet under the table. Um, but it, it will be a big change in style for, for him. I mean, at Newton, he's he's had a lot of resource. There's a big analyst team and it's quite a process driven um, style. Uh, whereas Jupiter, it's more each manager does their own thing. So. So, yeah, it's quite interesting in terms of both what Jason's leaving behind at Newton and, and what will happen at Jupiter. Martin, do you think investors should sell or, if they don't already hold it, avoid buying Newton Asian income as uh, Jason Pidcock has left? Um, I think I think any time a fund manager leaves departs sort of quite suddenly, and it was a, a pretty sudden resignation. We didn't know it was happening. Um, yeah, investors have to obviously review the holding, but I'd say don't rush to make a decision on this. This is a you know, large fund, as Kate just said, over four billion pound fund. So I think Newton are going to resource it accordingly. Um, and this shift to a team-based approach, led by uh, Rob Marshall Lee. Um, the support from Caroline Keane continues within the fund. So I, th I think not much is going to change immediately, I'd hope, anyway. Um, yeah, take your time over it. Don't sort of have a knee-jerk reaction to sort of sell quickly and move into something else, but carry out a bit of research first. Petronella, what do you think? Um, well, we currently own the Asian fund in our in our portfolios. Um, didn't come too much of a surprise, I think, when he when, when, that where he's gone, because... Um, he's, he's quite a contrarian investor. Um, you've been well rewarded, but it's been quite a volatile journey. Um, that's very common, as you, as you said, Kate, mm -hmm. in terms of um, the Jupiter style. So we're not surprised. Um, we're not currently um, liquidating the holding. So as, as Martin said, I think we just wait to see what happens as there is, is a big team behind them there. It is a big fund. Um, and we'll certainly be keeping a very watchful eye on Jason in the future. Mm. Um, and I mean, do you, do you think you should buy Jupiter's new fund when it comes out? How long? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll take a look at the mandate, um, as we always do when new fund launches. Uh, sometimes it's quite, it's just worth just sitting back and just taking a look to see how, how it seeds, how it starts, uh, how quickly it grows. Um, but he's certainly one to watch. Are there any other Asian equity income funds that um, you think are, are worth um, looking at? Well, I think the alternatives for us would be to, to definitely to stick with uh, asset management groups that have got a lot of experience in those areas. So particularly uh, Schroeder's and Matthews have got two Asian funds that we like, the Schroeder Asian Income and the Matthews Asia Dividend Fund are two that um, are also on our buy list. Um, but again, you know, same protocols, same risks, same you know issues with those with those types of funds. But go with managers that that have a depth of you know, of experience in those in those investment areas because it is quite country specific in terms of looking for returns. So those are the two funds that we would um, we, we have on our buy list. Martin, do you have any suggestions? I agree entirely with the Schroeder Asian Income Fund. You know, it's an experienced manager, um, you know, good return, and also they've got a lot of analysts across the region, so they're really well resourced. Um, another one which has popped up on our sort of our filters and things um, since uh, hearing the news about Jason's departure is the Legal and General Asian Income Trust. It's only a, a smallish portfolio, a small 200 million pound portfolio, so um, very small in comparison. 
Um, but it's, you know, it's an attractive yield, 4.2% um, experience manager and also a, a focus on Australia and Hong Kong, so possibly investment regions that investors might sort of have a little less volatility from than some of the, the sort of more emerging uh, Asian equity markets. Interesting suggestions. Well, thank you very much to our special guest, Petronella West, Chartered Wealth Manager and Director of Private Clients at uh, Investment Quorum, and Martin Bamford, Chartered Financial Planner, and Managing Director at Informed Choice. Thanks also to Kate Bealey. You can read more about how to achieve growth in your ISA over a relatively short period and Asian equity income in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening.